Welcome back, everybody, to Behind the Shield. I'm your host, Marco Estrella. Thank you for joining us today. I hope uh, everybody has have uh, has been having a nice summer uh, panel. Everybody, uh, having, yeah, uh, yeah. So, so far, so, so good. good. Uh, so far, so good. Good, good. Nice to hear it. Hopefully, it's the same for our audience as well. I myself, I'm on the cusp of uh, packing my bags for a nice uh, family vacation, so can't wait for that. Uh, but uh, let's let's uh, not get ahead of ourselves, and uh, we have a, a show to do today. Um, it's going to be an all hot topics show. For those of you who are familiar with our format, uh, you know that we uh, uh, we go through a series of uh, hot topics at the top of the hour, uh, followed by some spotlight speakers and some questions from the audience. But we uh, Seeing as we were off last month and a lot of things happened, uh, we decided to gather our favorite topics and things that are ongoing. Um, so we're going to be sharing uh, those with you today. As always, if you're new to the show and you'd like to catch up on past episodes, you can find them at virtualguardian.com or where you subscribe to your favorite podcasts. So let's get to it. To help me navigate the hot topics today, I call upon my trusty panel of cybersecurity experts, and they are. Patrick Naum, Virtual Guardian CEO. Patrick helps clients with solutions on how to defend themselves against all manner of cyber threats. Hi, Pat. Hi, everyone. Glad to be back. Thanks for reinviting me. Absolutely. Uh, we are also privileged to be joined not by one, but both Navilogic co-founders, Bill Strube and Bob Bennett. Hi, guys. How's it going today? Good. Hey, Marco. Thank you. Hey, Bob. Happy to be here. Excellent. Happy to have you. How, uh, how are things, uh, how's summer down in Minnesota these days? It's been a hot summer and uh, filled with uh, wildfire smoke, just like a lot of folks throughout the U.S. and Canada. But um, it's a beautiful day today. Yeah, I've heard that you've been getting some of the smoke uh, coming down from Canada, right? Indeed. Wow. Yeah, that's been pretty hot for that. And we keep blowing smoke up here. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Pat. <laughs> so welcome, gents. Um, so as I mentioned, today's a special episode, um, hot topics only. We have lots of good subjects to get to. Um, so that's going to be uh, pretty fun. So let's get right to it. And uh, I put your names in a hat. And Patrick, you are up of first. Yes. Of you, Was that, uh, did you hire an accounting firm to validate uh, whether the, uh, the picking of the names in the hat was according to uh, proper <laughs> governance? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. There, it's all above board. Trust me. I know. Yeah, now that now that three of the four accounting firms have been hacked, yeah, I, I'm not sure I trust that either. <laughs> it's true. Oh, so uh, we're starting with a, a government story. Um, we we often kind of rag on on government uh, with their policies and their initiatives, but this one seems to be pretty positive. So uh, let our audience know about it, please. Thanks, Marco. And actually, it's interesting because I, I seem to be the bringer uh, of good news uh, over the last two podcasts, because the last one I had, you know, the title was, uh, you know, cyberspace is finally, if unevenly, getting safer from The Economist. One of the, uh, actually, it was an article in The Economist, but it was um, the former chief of Britain's, uh, Britain's former cyber chief that wrote the article. Mm -hmm. And in the article, he was referring to, uh, in 2016, uh, you guys may recall, and I talked about it last time, but there was a 
uh, a hack that literally um, took control of CCTV cameras that had default passwords, the typical one, two, three, four, five, and launched, you know, from those different devices, uh, launched an attack on DIN, um, a, D a DOS attack, DDoS attack, which literally uh, clogged up a lot of, because uh, DIN is, you know, they, they play a role in moving data across the internet and literally uh, stopped Amazon, Twitter, Reddit back then in their tracks uh, following that attack. And this is 2016. So if you look at, you know, where we are, uh, you know, seven years later, well, this is what I wanted to talk to you about uh, today. Well, it's the U.S. Cyber Trust Mark uh, initiative from the White House, which is quite interesting because it's the government getting together with, uh, with industry players, which I'll name, uh, I'll name a few later in the conversation. But what they're trying to do is, is create a standard, much like the Energy Star standard. Uh, so this standard would be named the U.S. Cyber Trust Mark uh, with a, apparently what they're looking at is creating like a QR code where you could scan or, and find a registry of, of authorized devices or certified devices and, um, and companies uh, for those products uh, that are uh, in, the, in the realm of internet of things. So all connected devices that have an IP address, whether Bluetooth or Wi-Fi devices. And it's quite interesting, uh, like I said, because the industry is on board with this and they wanna create some sort of segmentation in the market in terms of devices that are able to, uh, to update, get updates, security updates uh, that have some functionality around uh, you know, intrusion detection or detecting compromise if they're compromised, mm -hmm. uh, you know, non-default password structures and a whole range of, of different measures to, to set them apart to help consumers protect themselves and buy devices that could be secured. Uh, because as it stands now, you know, they were giving an example, there was a, a research uh, mandated in April by Bitdefender and Netgear. And they were saying that the most vulnerable devices in 2022 were and they specify by far and away, smart TVs, smart plugs, routers, and digital video recorders. So, you know, think of all the bad uses uh, from these devices if you were to compromise them. So they're, you know, they're obviously gonna address many more uh, devices here, um, you know, in terms of, uh, of, of protecting them and creating a, a, a segmentation. So it is a White House initiative with the industry. But uh, what's interesting, what's in interesting before I let you guys uh, jump in is that there's other organizations that are participating. As an example, uh, NIST is also participating. They have to, um, as of the end of this year, they'll have to share and they've been mandated to share best practice around these connected devices. If you are to create a, uh, designation what should it entail in more detail than just what i mentioned in terms of the, the various features and benefits of those devices so they're having they're taking a serious look at it the program will be overseen by the fcc uh, as you know they they supervise everything wireless across the united states um you also have um other agencies that can be participating for instance what i found interesting especially when we think about critical infrastructure is the U.S. Department of Energy is going to also participate and they're going to focus on smart meters, power inverters, and, you know, which are all, you know, components uh, of the clean smart grid of the future. So if we're, we're, we're pursuing these green initiatives and, and pivoting from 
you know, traditional uh, energy sources and going green, well, the particularities of green energy is that it's very dependent on, on intelligent uh, grids and all sorts of devices. So it increases vulnerability down, down the road for, as it pertains to critical infrastructure. Um, so that's, that's really, there's an alignment of various departments. It's, it's a great initiative. And if you look at the vendors that are behind that, vendors and universities, you have Amazon, Best Buy, Carnegie Mellon University, Scilab, Cisco, uh, consumer reports, uh, Google, uh, Information Technology Industry, Industry Council, LG. So we have the, um, the Koreans there. So it's not just the US, it's any company operating in the US, Qualcomm, Samsung, uh, Yale University, and a, and a few other uh, organizations. So it's, it's, really, it's really interesting. I think it's a good, good initiative. It'll not protect us for, from every single situation, certainly not the install base, right? <laughs> Which is in the billions of devices, but certainly moving forward, it'll it'll help uh, customers uh, choose the right uh, right solutions uh, down the road. I love the analogy with the Energy Star. Everybody knows Energy Star now on their fridge, on their stove, or whatever. So if we can get some sort of cybersecurity star, um, because uh, you know the industry has been clamoring for safer devices. You know, it's enough of uh, every single Bluetooth device or Internet of Things device sold in stores, having password 0000 all the time and not being, you know, having zero security thought into them. Uh, it, it, I see it very, very positively anyway. Yeah. I mean, there's no doubt about it. It's, it's going to help privacy uh, because one, I don't want people looking inside of my refrigerator except for me to find out my unhealthy living choices with meals. <laughs> your um, insurance company wouldn't like it, eh? <laughs> exactly. But two, I mean, the, these devices historically been used for distributed denial of service attacks, uh, invading your privacy at home, uh, and other uh, nefarious uh, activities. So, I mean, this is definitely kudos to the industry in realizing that um, these connected devices. Uh, don't just impact those who buy them. They could also impact others uh, in good or bad ways. So definitely applaud the uh, the effort. You know, going down that path, Bill, when you talk about that and, and in the sense of uh, smart home devices, back in the early days of the smart home, um, 15, 16 years ago, when we were really looking at that, it wasn't so much about being nefarious. It was either controlling your house or creating dangerous situations, but also potentially... Um, whether you call it misuse or whether you call it management, if your government wants you to use less energy, potentially enforcing you to do that, uh, if not through uh, through nefarious means. Um, so kind of uh, interesting in the way that we we look at things, I think, and, and determine the many ways that there can be impacts from it. Um, but with something like that, I think that the using it in terms of an energy star certification, you know, now we think, you know, Marco, to your point is, that's everywhere, right? And we see it on every device, but it took us a long time to get there. So what happens when your device is, um, you know, is hacked and you lose your, you lose your little sticker on it, right? Then what are you going to do? Are they going to pull all of those back? Um, Recall. But, you know, if, Recall. Yeah. Well, there's got to be some sort of recertification and say you're, you're no longer in compliance. And I think, uh, Patrick, that article actually discussed that, didn't it? Yes, it did. But I mean, it, the devil's going to be in the details, of course, and it doesn't, you know, it, it, it's oriented to specific devices, not necessarily companies, right? So, you know, it won't, it won't delist or penalize Samsung. Obviously, 
if someone learns if one of Samsung's devices was affected, it may affect them, but it is specific to the, and that's why you know, they're gonna have a, a QR code on each uh, single device so you could validate yourself, right? And not, you know, because we see like whether it's in bio products and whatnot, there's a lot of people out there, charlatans that just put a sticker on and just say it's bio or secure or whatnot. And, and you have no way of validating that. Well, the QR code will, will, will relate back to a registry when probably they'll have serial numbers there, specific device uh, versions and models. So you, you, they won't be able to escape that, which is great. Um, and also, I mean, what surprised me, and it's it maybe the question of the hour is like, are we talking about, you know, a 10 year implementation schedule? Well, they're, they came out with this and they were already very advanced. So they're planning on implementing this by next year. Ooh, having obviously, and by the way, it's a, I didn't mention that, it's a voluntary program. Right, and the hope for for industry is is to to be the first ones out there to to to, to you know to um, to position that they're secure and they have secure products. So there's yeah. a leader, a, a first leader advantage. Um, and between us, you know, uh, in, in our field and how we see things, and, and we could appreciate the, you know how technology is sometimes less complicated than we think. If you look at you know securing these devices, you know, uh, making sure there's no default passwords. Uh, that they're updatable, upgradable. Technically, it's not a big, big deal. I don't think it's going to incur a lot of costs for those vendors to do so. And I think the rewards will be uh, will be great, especially if you look at, um, you know, obviously we, we think about China when we talk about security and how many of those devices are manufactured in China today. It'll be interesting to see when Amazon says, uh, okay, we're participating, how far mm -hmm. will it go? And to what type of products, right? And and where will be they be manufactured? So there's, that's going to be interesting to see. I think it's also be interesting to find out when you look at the um, the concept of just updating them, updating the uh, the the firmware or supporting software, whatever it may be. There's if you're going to use a QR code, there has to be a registration database as well as some way to look up your current running rev to to display that back to you. So. Yeah. Um, auto compliance today could be fixed by a patched later on today. So yep. it'll be interesting to find out how they uh, they maintain the uh, the software revisions and information through the QR system. Well, it's definitely a, a step in the right, a very big step in the right direction. But there there will be uh, you know gaps and complexities uh, initially. I, I think that's the main point, Patrick. Is is it is a step in the right direction, and there's so many other positive things that can come from it. And generally, we don't say that about uh, regulation coming from the U.S. government. So it's uh, from any it, government. It, yeah, or any government. But uh, it appears to be a good step, and and let's follow it and hope it uh, hope it really leads somewhere uh, good for everybody, especially you know at the everyday average user who's maybe not as tech savvy but knows what they can rely on and knows how to check on this stuff i think that's a good step so let's look out for the us cyber trust mark sometime coming to you sometime next you, year you heard it here first or well maybe not is your company digitally resilient? 75% of small businesses have no disaster recovery plan and backup copies do not guarantee an organization's ability to get back to business. For more than 25 years, ESI Technologies has specialized in IT continuity, reducing financial and operational impacts for our clients. Learn more about digital resilience from ESI's experts at esitechnologies.com. Now we're moving, moving on, gentlemen, to the next topic, and uh, let's keep the positive vibes going. Um, we're moving on to Bob. 
Um, is it Bob? Y yes, it is Bob. So um, you are not in the government realm, but you're more in the industry realm. Um, and something positive for our industry uh, is happening. So please tell us about it. What did you read about uh, recently? Well, I, th I think this is a mixed one. Um, and it's, it is back to the U.S. government, but a different agency this time. And uh, when I say mixed, some people really like it and some people are lamenting it. So I'll, I'll dive into that. But um, there's, there's two uh, pieces of this. And this is kind of, uh, you know, today reporting from sort of my area in the CISO, former CISO role and uh, on the governance and risk side. Um, but what recently happened is is the SEC released their rule on on cybersecurity risk management strategy, governance, and incident disclosure. So there are a lot of changes being debated, and I think one of the maybe one of the good things we take away from this podcast today, and you see, is we're actually getting some of these things through our government agencies, and even if it's an executive order, um, some of these things are coming to market that have been uh, been debated for a long time. So I think there's good movement there. So the the key thing in, in this uh, um, rule from the SEC is that there is a four-day timeline for incident disclosure. So that has always been in there. And it, it sort of shifted from the details of the incident to say when it now focuses on material impact. So um, what we all remember from uh, from our SOX disclosures when Sarbanes-Oxley came out in the early 2000s is materiality generally has a dollar limit um, for that uh, for each organization, and they're familiar with what that is. So it depends on what components make that up for their reporting. But once they determine it to hit that material threshold, uh, companies, any public company, including smaller companies, um, will have to report uh, and and have some disclosure of what that incident was. Um, so that's a that's a really big deal. Um, in terms of what they have to report, then that's some of the other uh, interesting details. So they they changed some of the language from what it was before in policies and procedures to processes on program disclosure. So what they're doing is trying to give, they're changing a little bit the makeup and, and in the final rule change from what was proposed on how specific they need to be versus um, allowing a little more generalities and saying, here's how we approach um, you know, risk management and our security and cybersecurity specifically um, from a principled perspective. Um, and, and so they're not trying not to disclose all the details. Um, but at the same time, letting people know what happened and doing this publicly uh, provided, and there's one exclusion, that exclusion being uh, the carve out for the, uh, those disclosures that could pose a risk to national security or public safety, um, which I imagine is going to have to be negotiated to, to figure that out. So there were a lot of confusing terms, as you can imagine, a lot of things needing definition in the final rule. Um, some of the things removed were aggregating incidents. So if within a year you have multiple incidents that up add up to that material threshold, um, that was actually removed uh, due to some ambiguity and, and lack of the ability to come to consensus on what that was. Um, one of the things taken out, and this is where some of the convention or uh, contention, I should say, comes in, and that is 
um, there is no requirement. They remove the requirement to disclose whether the firm has a chief information security officer, a CISO, um, and they left it more broad to disclose what positions and what committees are responsible for managing uh, cyber risk. So they're spreading liability by doing that. Yeah, I would. They think. are. And is that a good thing or a bad thing? And that's where people are are getting a little contentious. And that's the springboard to my second part of this <laughs> of this topic as well. Um, and the reason for that contention is. The CISO has a couple levels to deal with. You go through your senior leadership team before you go to your board of directors. And so a lot of people that are working on getting that cybersecurity oversight um, at the board level to be more meaningful uh, think this is a step in, a, in the wrong direction, while other people feel it's, it's a step in the right direction. Um, and so that's where a lot of the contention comes in, which brings me to the related uh, subject where the SEC, same organization, same government agency, uh, sent a Wells notice to the SolarWinds CISO and the CFO regarding the breach at SolarWinds. And so while, um, while a Wells notice uh, normally would name a CEO or CFO for issues such as you know, fraud schemes or market manipulation, they generally don't apply to the CISO. Well, now that this does, you're putting a, a bigger mark on the CISO, and, and there's a lot of conversation in the CISO committee now about um, needing contractual protection should this happen. And so it puts a lot more uh, CISOs on the hot seat, and they may or may not have the, the ability to really impact that change within their organizations. So um, again, finding it interesting that the government, the U.S. government is, and agencies are really moving on some of these things. And depending on how these roll out and how they hit, um, you know, with breach disclosures, as well as who's on the hot seat and who's really responsible, could be making some changes in the industry. So I found those particularly interesting on the, um, from the leadership side. Bob, as related to the, uh, the CISO, and talking about the CISO specifically, while they should understand and be able to relate the risks within the business environment, they rarely are the ones who actually sign off on risk appetite. And so when something bad happens and it comes back to them, it's, it's just interesting that they're now in a very tough position to potentially defend when they understand risk, they communicate risk, but they don't necessarily always own the risk. Uh, and therefore, when bad things happen, they still have to respond um, and potentially be the first person to lose their job. So that's pretty, pretty interesting. Right. They administer the risk, but they don't set, they don't set the risk boundaries, right? You're, you're correct. Correct. So now you see where a lot of CISOs are concerned and saying, great, now I, he, because they can just point the finger at me, I have even less ability to impact and affect change in my organization. So you can see where that's coming from as a major concern. It's, it's interesting to contrast that with Law 25 here uh, in, in Quebec and in Canada, well, Quebec specifically in Canada. Law 25 states, and obviously it is uh, pretty much oriented towards uh, PII protection. We are obliged, organizations are obliged to name a DPO, a data protection officer, and they are liable. By default, it's the top executive unless he delegates, he or she delegates. So it's interesting to see the contrast. Now, coming back to, to, to the disclosure, I mean, everything, you know, the deep devil's in the details. Once again, what is the materiality? How is it defined, right? And I already see litigation down the road. Imagine a scenario where 
an organization decides that it's not material and then something leaks or something is found out later on, it affects our the perception is that the stock price is affected. And then you got shareholders suing the company to saying, well, had I known I would have sold my shares or not bought shares. And this could let's, there's going to be a lot of precedence and jurisprudence to uh, in the courts to, to, to set those, those, those parameters. It'll be interesting. The things that we're talking about, this first came up in a previous Behind the Shield. We talked about it roughly a year ago, maybe a little over a year ago. And I remember saying that, the, that, that I personally didn't see this going through just based on the, uh, the pushback for these reasons. Uh, the fact that it's moved forward, as I agree, it's a good thing. But I can also understand why so many people uh, internally within organizations are really raising an eyebrow at this particular uh, uh, SEC uh, regulation. It'll be interesting. Well, As thanks, always. Uh, thanks, Bob, for uh, that topic. Uh, that was good. Um, let's go on to Bill. Uh, you have some uh, geopolitical news for us, uh, a bit worrisome, coming out of Asia. What's up? Well, it, it's not a surprise to many people that uh, watch the news that uh, relationships between China and the U.S. is um, we've got a very complex relationship with each other. Mm -hmm. um, you know, two nation states definitely looking to be uh, the largest superpower. So when it gets into um, uh, looking at things such as uh, blaming each other for pandemics, government sanctions, uh, positioning on Taiwan, spy balloons, and now something that I'm going to call, uh, or somebody else has called for me, Volt Typhoon, a, uh, a state-backed hacker from China that is uh, apparently getting into our, our uh, U.S. bases is um, certainly raising more eyebrows as far as how complicated and complex a relationship with China could get. It sounds like our relationship, uh, Bill, when it pertains to hockey, you know, between the Wild and the Montreal Canadiens, right? There's a lot of different uh, disagreements there. And yeah, although, you know, from a superpower, uh, one, neither one of us have one when it comes to hockey because we haven't taken cups and, and here in Minnesota or in Canada as of late. Uh, but as of two, late, uh, at least the Wild have beat Montreal the last couple of seasons handily. So that might change this year. And now we expect <laughs> to, to, to negotiate peace after that comment. Uh, that's up to you. <laughs> master control master control please uh, control the muting mute patrick and mute bill please um <laughs> uh, but um going back to the news in, in may of 2023 microsoft actually observed um activity in guam by this chinese state-backed hacker uh, that they call volt typhoon uh, basically getting into uh various systems uh, the critical infrastructure power electric water and so on and initially, they thought that it was, you know, potentially just contained in a small area. But uh, since May of this year, more and more U.S. bases are seeing the malware that Volt Typhoon created popping up in different portions of critical infrastructure and beyond just the bases, but the surrounding cities and areas where these bases are located. Um, one congressman here in the United States called this a ticking time bomb uh, with, a, with a bit of a race to figure out where this malware is, how do we contain it, how do we continue to uh, find indicators of compromise. Uh, but it has definitely been found across various locations um, and 
has led George Barnes, the Deputy Director of National Security Agency, to say that China is a steadfast and, and pardon me, China is steadfast and determined to penetrate our governments, our companies, and our critical infrastructure. And I mean, to be fair, that's not news. Um, that's something we've all known. And to be fair, it's not just China. Um, it's it's pretty much every power across the United States that have skilled, determined uh, cyber or non-cyber uh, warriors out there. And we've seen it in Ukraine, we've seen it in Russia, we see it in China, we see it in Iran, we see it in the United States. Um, but the, um, the thing that I thought was interesting looking at this particular topic was, yes, it's definitely China-focused as far as their emphasis and looking at our bases, looking at how do they uh, potentially get an upper hand using cyber if um, if we came to uh, a, a war or a crisis involving Taiwan and China, potentially to cut up our capabilities to respond. But but really, the ramifications go well beyond that. It's really just about any crisis anywhere in the world uh, with our connected devices, almost going back to something that Patrick was talking about a moment ago. If, if it's a connected device, if it's on the grid, if, if it's... Um, something we need for critical infrastructure, it's vulnerable, uh, especially if it's already been compromised with backdoor malware that allows someone to bring it up or down at their leisure. Uh, the good news is the, the feeling is if, uh, if this uh, Volt Typhoon malware was enacted, everyone believes that they'd be able to restore uh, critical infrastructure capabilities within a matter of days, but at that point, a matter of days is a long period of time. So, um, Needless to say, it's certainly worth watching and continuing to consider how uh, how cyber warfare is going to continue to develop into a first attack, not necessarily uh, a secondary or tertiary attack. You are behind the shield. If you're enjoying today's live episode, listen to Encore Performances. Search for our podcast, Virtual Guardians Behind the Shield, at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Podbean, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. We want to arm your business with the knowledge to navigate today's threat landscape. Remember, when you're behind the shield, you're ahead of the game. I'm I'm wondering, when I'm listening to you explain what, what happens there, what happened, uh, do you think the U.S. can say the same thing about China? Like, do you think there's an article... Uh, a Chinese behind the shield there, and they're saying that the U.S. has the capability of undermining their infrastructure and their electric and their, you know, water and all that stuff. Or is it oh, I, because the sheer number of Chinese hackers and it's... Be, being honest, I'll just say that China's not the only group out there doing it. Uh, we We have special cyber warriors as well. Uh -huh. I'm sure that if there was a Chinese behind the shield, they would be talking about the United States disproportionately uh, in mm -hmm. comparison to the rest of the world. So, yeah, I think the answer to that is yes, Marco, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Patrick, Bob? Sure. I think with the, you know, migration of peoples, it's even easier to, you know, infiltrate um, other countries, maybe easier than it ever has been. Um, and mm -hmm. so I think that just complicates things. And so I know the the uh, the analysis on that one I've heard too is that we're expectedly waiting if um, to have a reduced impact should should China choose to try to reassume uh, 
Taiwan, they could certainly uh, reduce the the opportunity of the U.S. to respond. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's that's, that's why we found it in Guam. That's why Guam is critical to our uh, our support in case of such an event. Yep. And all of our utilities give us power, and without a lot of redundancy and a long lead time to get heavy equipment. Yep. Well, the good news, as uh, since we're on topic. Uh, uh, you remember, well, some of you may remember G.I. Joe. I used to watch G.I. Joe, knowing is half the battle, <laughs> right? Yo, Joe. So, uh, so not only, you know, you, they probably, there's probably initiatives to try to, to find those vulnerabilities and, and those, uh, those dormant threats, but also backup plans in, in the real world to make sure that, you know, obviously you lose inefficiency. But you want to make sure that you put proper plans in place to, uh, you know, to to understand and to launch or, or defend, regardless of any uh, technological impact. But obviously, it would be mitigated. Um, I guess we'll hopefully we don't we will never have. Hopefully, to we never get there. Yeah, That's fingers right. crossed. Fingers exactly. crossed. All right, our next uh, hot topic, uh, we're back to Patrick, and you have some uh, artificial intelligence news. Uh, what caught your attention, Patrick? A worm, worm GPT. Worm GPT now, yeah. okay, all right. Well, we caught, we caught a new, you know, it, it's one of those things when, you you know, there's two sides to, to the technology, uh, 20 coin and, and technology, you know, you have the good side, you know, the good innovations and developments and advancements and you have the bad uses of technology and the writing was kind of on the on the wall on that in terms of ai and its applicability or usability for for bad actors and we we've seen it with warm uh, warm gpt you know if we think about you know for the last few years ransomware as a service going to the dark web renting apps installing apps launching attacks by you know people with average skills or others leveraging robots or automated scans to identify vulnerabilities and toolkit deployments. You you think of those and you're like, okay, there's still a certain amount of heavy lifting in terms of usability and using them. And you have to put an effort in to, to, to get results. Then you, you end up switching gears and you have AI take a lot of those, um, those responsibilities from you and literally, um, you know, leveraging AI is accelerating, facilitating, improving all sorts of different uh, um, bad acts at scale. You know, that's what's happening. I'll give you just an example, you know, the prompt, one uh, GPT's prompt here. In the article we were talking about, uh, you have a prompt here and it says, uh, it defines itself as the biggest enemy of the well-known chat GPT, the start, and literally, uh, you know, this is the person in particular here typed, write me a Python malware that grabs computers, username, external IP address, Google Chrome cookies, zip everything and send it to Discord web app. And lo and behold, you see the code right under that, right? That, that's been creating, created. So generative AI used for, for bad uses. Um, it's been a... So Worm GPT uh, is now available. It's been advertised on the underground forums and it's launching sophisticated phishing and business email compromise attacks for one, with the advantage of, of, of the following, right? If you look at the BEC um, 
attacks, they take, they're very, it's a very manual process, studying your target, gaining data, information, and then launching an attack, making sure that, that you're not, you're not misspelling anything. Um, you know, same with a phishing attack. And sometimes they're, they're visually uh, easy to identify. We'll, we'll, we'll put an AI to the task and all of a sudden your quality, your precision, speed, and doing all that at scale is increased uh, a thousandfold, right? So you could quickly extrapolate where this is going. Um, you know, and, and if you look at the other phenomenon is, is they're calling it jailbreaking uh, GPT or generative models, right? And offering up non-binding or non-gated um, large language models, you know? It, and then they were, they were doing a parallel with an analysis of, of ChatGPT and BARD. So BARD apparently, I didn't know this, uh, have anti-abuse restrictors that are not as, that are more permissive than ChatGPT. So right there and then you're, you're seeing a vulnerability there. Uh, obviously the APIs were also open for a lot of those, uh, those models. So obviously opening it for for hackers to take advantage of the of the power uh, powerhouse that these provide in terms of of, of you know different queries um and they're just great language models without the ethical boundaries that we're trying to have you know chat gpt and the others put and apply to cybersecurity uh, uh situations now upon reading this well so we talk a lot about a new job that's been created you know the the prompt engineers well, now we're, guess what? We have prompt criminals uh, that are now being uh, created, right? When you think about what's going on. And uh, I don't know where this is going to end. I mean, it's, it's one thing to, you know, to, um, to put legislation in place and rein in. And we have a lot of people that signed off, including Elon Musk and a bunch of other scientists on, we need to, you know, control those models, you know, mainstream models, what are we going to do with the ones that are below ground, right? Underground. Uh, the last example they gave in this article is um, there's a research outfit that, that was able to determine that it was a, there was an AI model and it was called uh, GPT-6JB that was able to, to create and spread this information. So the model, you know, through all sorts of, of, of misinformation and it just dumped everything in the public repository. And, and then all of a sudden, and this comes back to API security and the ability to um, kind of detect when a specific model or application is broken or, or, or if, you know, whether it's a library or any other vectors uh, of, of attack are compromised. Um, in this case, uh, this public repository was feeding data into large language model uh, into, into legitimate applications. You know, so you literally have, and, and they've named it an LLM supply chain poisoning, large language model supply chain poisoning. And they're actually called it, the technique is now called, it's dubbed poison GPT, <laughs> right? So, so you're, you're in such, it's, you're in a territory that Frankly, you know, and, and you do have companies like Hidden Layer and, and other companies that, that are developing models to try to detect, you know, poison, poisoning in, in different models. But, you know, how fast are they going to keep, keep 
keep up with uh, with these guys, right? And and, and we all know the, the speed at which uh, AI is developing. So it, it is synchronous. There's synchronous with uh, you know mainland and the uh, and the underground. I mean, the same speed is is servicing both both the bad and, and the good actors. So interesting. Yeah, yeah, we spoke about artificial intelligence in past in past shows. Um, and how bad guys are leveraging that leveraging it and i think it was the christmas show where we had our wishes and uh we had said hopefully the good guys can learn to leverage it to defend better or to you to find ways to block the bad stuff but it's uh, an arms race it's an arms race yeah exactly yeah um okay thanks patrick uh we're gonna move on um a couple more topics here uh bob hackers are humans too uh apparently they they make mistakes as well uh can you tell us about uh, the one that you found yeah and that may be the way that uh you know while hackers may may get faster code from uh from these gpt models maybe because they still uh use commercially uh, commercially available vpn solutions that uh <laughs> we have some hope um but yeah, about uh, a month ago on July 5th, uh, Jump Cloud, um, which is, uh, it's an operational directory as a service platform, if you're not familiar, um, they offer single sign-on and, and MFA services to over 200,000 organizations almost worldwide. Um, they forced, uh, rotated all of the admin API keys for their customers on July 5th. And this came out in a Mandiant blog because Mandiant was obviously working with them and um, not knowing where these addresses were coming from. Well, when those commercial VPNs don't always work, um, the source locations can often be found. So what they found was um, they call it uh, UNC4899. Uh, that's how Mandiant tracks them. Um, part of North Korea's um, RGB, the Reconnaissance uh, General Bureau, that uh, is focused on um, cryptocurrency attacks generally. Uh, this one was a big one because um, they they were able to spearfish someone at Jump Cloud and get into their internal Jump Cloud environment and wrote a Ruby script. Um, to be able to uh, enter customer environments. And so while we hope that key rotation um, helped, uh, I think the, the last update on this is that they're still expecting more fallout from that. So we'll have to watch on that. But I think one of, one of my points there is, is as we talk about you know, the, the, uh, the device certification and other things, you still you think of supply chain and your third-party risk, and you think of devices, and you think of services, those service providers really have to be on top of the ball when they're serving you know, that many clients. And I think, again, when you go to your third-party and vendor risk management solutions, are you looking to that level? Um, and even yourself, do you have the ability to pick something up like this that quickly with your you know, your instant response retainers and other things? But it's, it's forcing us to continue to really look down deeper um, with how we provide, uh, or, or let me say procure, not just those third parties and vendors, um, but those services we rely on uh, as our own organization and, and looking at those a little more closely and maybe working closer with them. 
Um, so we'll see where that one goes, but I just thought this one was kind of, uh, there are a couple interesting angles to that one. And, and, uh, with that note, I'll open it up for some comment and discussion. <laughs> well, you know, all I'll say about North Korea there is that it's pretty well known that, uh, it's one of their best source of revenue is, is hacking, right. Um, actually contributes to a big part of their GDP, um, which is not much, to say, but, uh, um, you know, and um, we can laugh all we want, but they, they, they're desperate for attention. Uh, they sometimes, you know, throw uh, missiles out there out in the, uh, you know, Japan Sea and uh, um, just to, to say, hey, we're still here. And uh, if you don't take us seriously, uh, we'll do bad things. And there, here you go. You have these hackers, which I don't know how they're equipped or I'm not going to say anything about that because I don't know, but uh, blunders can still happen, I guess. Operational security failures. They do happen with humans. Absolutely. I've always wanted to know, uh, you know, you may say that the answer is, is, is clear, clear cut, but the level of collaboration, we don't seem to, to talk about the level of collaboration between the Chinese and North Koreans as it, as it pertains to cyber, the cyberspace. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, there's definitely alliances there as well, without a doubt. There has to be. There has yeah. to be. Yeah. Both sides. Protect yourself from the growing threat of ransomware attacks with Virtual Guardian. Keep your sensitive data secure, identify vulnerabilities ahead of time, and know that Virtual Guardian is focused on your security. So you can focus on what really matters, growing your business. At the intersection of people, process, and technology, we're guarding your critical mass, achieving digital resilience, and protecting what matters most. Virtual Guardian, unmatched security expertise, fueled by trust. Um, we have time for another hot topic. Bill, uh, let's close the hot topics with uh, you. Uh, you have a, well, the U.S. is on track for a, a sad record. What record is that? It is the record number of data breaches in a given year. So 2023, uh, we, we are on track to beat 2021, which was actually the record for data breaches. Um, and needless to say, I, I don't want to go heads down too much in the overall numbers because there's quite a bit of them here. So I just, I, we've got a few highlights here, but mm -hmm. the Identity Theft Resource Center, or ITRC, they've been tracking data breaches since 2005. And so in Q2 alone, we had 951 incidents, uh, which is a 114% increase over Q1. Uh, and if you look year over year from 2002 to 2003 in the same time frame, it represents 153% increase in data breaches. Uh, and that puts us on track to exceed the 180, uh, pardon me, 1,862 compromises recorded in 2021. Um, so what does that mean really so far this year? It means so far this year, roughly 156 million people have had portions of their information leaked out to obviously places they don't want that information, uh, which the only good news that I have is last year at this time, while the number of breaches is higher, last year the size of the breaches were larger, or there must have been just a couple uh, really large outliers, because last year at this time it was 424 million. So uh, a, a little bit lower uh, as far as the number of people impacted, but certainly going up. Uh, and then if you look at the types of breaches, 
99% of these were uh, security related uh, events. 75% of those were from cyber attacks. 22% going back to Bob's last story were uh, system or human error. So when mistakes are made, um, maybe you didn't uh, lock down your system or you left a, uh, oh, maybe uh, an Amazon uh, store open or a uh, container open. 8% of, uh, pardon me, 8% of the total compromises uh, were a result of a supply chain attack. Uh, so again, your third parties do still put you in harm's way when it comes to data breaches. Uh, not surprising, healthcare and financial services were the two largest industries hit. Uh, phishing and ransomware were the primary methods to, uh, to enact the, uh, the data breaches. Uh, and last but not least, as far as the, the high or low lights, however you want to watch them or listen to them, is uh, malware has increased 89% compared to the same period in 2022. So we're, we're definitely on track to, uh, to have a record number of data breaches. I, I rarely uh, take a story, but I also want to remind people that we can help ourselves um, start using MFA, make sure you have good endpoint protection. Uh, make sure you have secure, encrypted, and tested backups. Implement email uh, and web security. Do your security awareness training. Uh, get third-party risk management systems in place. Use them and monitor your third parties. Uh, and do login event monitoring. Those are some of the top things you can do to make sure that um, if such an event were to occur, you can see it or ideally prevent that type of event from happening to your organization. Or at the very least, mitigate the, the impact. To get the impact exactly, and I didn't put it on there, but you know, just thinking aloud, looking off my notes, number one rule is know where your data is to begin with mm -hmm. and limit access. Mm -hmm. Uh, so you know, that's probably rule number one understand what is uh sensitive, limit access, and put it in the, the, the proper controls, absolutely, and be ready to respond. Yep, all right. Well, there you go. Hot topics for summer 2023. Pretty pretty hot, if you ask me. Um, some positive stuff in there, some less positive stuff, a little bit of everything. Um, I, I, I knew you were going to give us a little bit of um, an overview there uh, with some statistics about breaches. And at the same time, um, IBM came out with the, uh, the cost of the data breach 2023 report. It just came out... Uh, couple of weeks ago. And um, uh, I thought I'd give some, a couple of, uh, not statistics really, but a couple of statements here for, uh, for the panel and uh, get your, uh, your reaction. So you haven't seen these. I got four of them for you. And uh, let's do some quick uh, uh, 10 second responses from you gentlemen, if you will. So rapid fire, rapid fire exactly. Uh, the cost of a breach has gone up 15 0.3% since 2020, but only 2.3 in the last 12 months, which denotes a slowdown. Your thoughts? Inflation is uh, going down a little bit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. That was that was meant to be funny, guys. Yeah, I think I'm only... laughing. I'm laughing in spirit, Patrick. I'm laughing inside. Yeah, yeah. I'm laughing outside. <laughs> <laughs> So a slowdown in the last 12 months. So basically 13% in two years and then 2% in the last, basically is what I'm saying. Is it, is, are we defending The cost better? of a breach? Well, I, the cost, yeah. 
Is it the cost of the breach or the, the value of the data that was stolen? The cost of the breach. So that's the the, okay. the, the name of the, and, the, the study, right? Cost of and the are data you breach? including just the cost of response, the cost of monitoring? Is it the cost to the organization, the soft costs? or Yeah, they could be changing the measurement. Because I read that report, Marco, so I'm ahead. I'm waiting for the next the next part so, of the question. Oh, you're ready? So much for the rapid so, fire answer. All right, all right. Ne number two, then. In the category of the most expensive breaches by country, the top three are... In the top three are USA in the number one spot and Canada in the number three spot. Your thoughts? Who's, who's number two? England? Uh, a group of Middle Eastern countries. Yeah. I think it is the surprising piece and the way they said it in the article I read was how the US was, what, 15% more expensive on any given breach? Um, not surprising um, just because of the volume of what happens here and the fact that when we try to integrate more and we we cycle things faster and faster, the the ability to um, I don't want to say jump networks, but the 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 integration, you know, the other point I could have made on the on the um, the the breach of of uh, um, jump cloud talks about all the APIs we're using now and the security of those. Of course, we know that intimately with our with our teams here um, under Virtual Guardian, but. Um, it's just everything needs to work first and we tend to secure it second. That's just not a surprise to me. And I expect that to keep going up. If, if the numbers include everything, one of the explanations would be the legal fees, in my opinion, because the cost of litigation in the U.S. is, is higher on average than, than a lot of jurisdictions. And I would assume going to the previous question that the reason why the cost of the breach has potentially gone down is... We've been dealing with breaches now at a rapid pace for several years. So level of preparedness has gone up. The number of controls have probably gone up and the amount of visibility to contain has probably gone up. So people are more prepared and their uh, response teams are probably better versed at handling these types of activities. Interesting. Interesting. But in absolute dollars, it's high, right? This is oh, absolute dollars. Is, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it was 7, yeah. million, uh, 7 million per breach in Canada. Uh, five point uh, something in, in the U.S. The lowest uh, country that was in the study was Australia, even though they, they've suffered in the past 12 months with breaches, but their lowest cost, uh, average cost is 2.7 million. That was Australia. So I'd be interested to look at the technology adoption rate of all the countries in the study as well. So you look at the number of uh, connected people, connected devices per, pe per person, pardon me. Um, I think... I think in the United States, uh, Canada, other other um, well-connected countries, I bet you that it's disproportionately higher in each of those particular uh, countries. Mm -hmm. uh, just mm -hmm. a thought as well. So Marco and Jens, let me throw a rapid fire back at you. With the SEC article I discussed and the fact that public companies, uh, that'll go into effect somewhere around the turn of the year after it's actually written in the registry, uh, when they have to report, will that number go up? Yes. Yes. Mm. There yep. you go. Um, number three, only one third of companies discovered the breaches on discovered their breaches with their own staff and or security solutions. Two thirds sure were false. signaled by authorities or by the criminal himself. This is absolutely true. This is from the study. One third was discovered by the staff or the tools themselves. 
and two thirds by authorities or the criminals. It's good. Uh, one third is good. I thought it would be, had you asked me earlier to, to, to venture a number, I would have said 10% or something. Really? Of you have had a little faith. No, I, that's, I'm not surprised that. by that number. And at the same time, it, it, it takes one of my earlier statements out the window as far as being prepared. Um, <laughs> but, you know, with, with ransomware uh, specifically, it's not a surprise to find out an external party is going to contact them before they find it on their own. Um, for example, you know, well, unless you want to call a big ransom screen on your, on your laptop, uh, a notification that you found it yourself. Uh, <laughs> you know what it, it, and that it's exactly it because when something manifests itself you know someone's going to be detecting it what i would love to know is how many companies detect dormant threats in their network before the symptoms erupt mm -hmm. and that'll be close to zero right what's the average ibm again the ibm statistics i think the average um well the average duration is like 273 days, I think, before an attack is launched. So people are lurking on average in your network for almost a year. That would be a good statistic to find because that's what we need to be doing to, to Bill's point is discovering these before they erupt. Well, you uh, you kind of hit on my last uh, rapid fire there. Uh, so I'll direct this, this one directly to you, Patrick. What's 204 and 73? Well, 204 is probably the time at which uh, a threat is dormant and 73, the to average time to recover from a, an attack. Bravo. So, that is exactly right. That is exactly right. So uh, the average time companies take to detect the breach is 204 and the number of days to contain said breach. Uh, 73 days. That's a lot of time. That's a long that's like time. Two months. Yeah. More than more two than months. Two months. Yeah. Okay, thank you, gentlemen. Uh, thanks for the hot topics. Thanks for the rapid fire. Um, just before we go, a little sad note in the cybersecurity community. Um, I think you all know them. He's probably one of the most famous uh, cybersecurity personalities, I guess, in our industry. Kevin Mitnick passed away last month at age 59 of That's pancreatic uh, cancer. Uh, he was well known for, well, infamous for being a fugitive, uh, an FBI fugitive on the most wanted list for two and a half years before he was eventually caught, tried, and uh, he did five years in jail. Pardon me? And then recruited, no? Yep. Uh, well, he came out, he decided to go onto the white hat uh, side, onto the good side, and uh, he he um, started his own consultancy firm. So the, the Kevin Mitnick Consultancy LLC, and, uh, and then, of course, he wrote some books. There were some movies, uh, um, a lot of stuff that, you know, uh, The Art of uh, Deception, uh, Ghost in the Wire, the art, the art of Invisibility, a lot of things in those books, uh, some controversial. So he had some controversial statements. and uh, So uh, I, I don't know. I haven't asked you this. So anybody have any Kevin Mitnick stories? Have you ever met him at, uh, uh, you know, Black Hat or, or, or DEF CON? Yeah, Bill? Go ahead. Yeah, I'm, I've, uh, well, one, other than having a free Kevin sticker and reading all 2600 as a small child. Um, oh, yeah. Back in the day. Um, you know, I, I got the opportunity to meet Kevin a couple different times at uh, Black Hat and RSA. Uh, we also had, a, when I worked at Qualys, uh, Kevin spoke at a couple uh, events that we held. I'll just say that um, the, uh, the 
the time that he faced in his roughest years or toughest years from a personal perspective, uh, they, they impacted him, but I will just say he was a, he was a fantastic person to talk to very generous with his time and talent, um, would provide advice to those looking for it and was happy to talk to literally anybody who came up to him. So really enjoyed the, uh, the few opportunities I had to meet him face to face. And then, um, uh, yeah, and then when it came to some of his business endeavors, um, you know, he he did some in videos uh, with no before and other companies that were actually quite good. Really enjoyed those as well. Right. Yeah, and I I think uh, some of the early days after um, after he was uh, arrested and and then coming back out public, those were probably some of the toughest times for the guy. And I know we had uh, when I was working with the local ISSA chapter. And we wanted to have him come speak. Boy, there were some long, contentious debates, and and uh, in the years ensuing, those. yep. <laughs> and in the years ensuing, um, you know, some really nice, uh, sometimes heated but respectful conversations. So, kind of as Bill said, um, I think he did a lot of redeeming work and and helped a lot of people in the end, and uh, will be sorely missed in the community. Well, thank, thank you very much, uh, gentlemen. I'm very appreciated. Thanks for your hot topics. Thank you for, thank you for, uh, uh, for everything. So um, that's all for today's show. I want to thank uh, Bob Bennett, Bill Struve, and uh, Patrick Naum for all your time, your hot topics. Good show as usual. I uh, really enjoyed myself today. Um, thank you again for all your support. Uh, without you, we wouldn't be doing this. And remember, um, as always, when you're behind a shield, you're ahead of the game. Thank you, Have everybody. Nice Thank you, everyone. Happy vacation, Marco. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you.